backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from New York, she is the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 in the great state of Ohio. Member of the bar in New York and in the Garden State in New Jersey, she is the one we know as Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you? I'm good, Justin. Rainy day in the Big Apple, but other than that, doing great. Well, it's good to have you back. And joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Washington insider, longtime Senate staffer, and a very distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, greetings. Greetings. You know, we've got a lot to talk about, unfortunately. Uh, oh, and I can't forget joining us, uh, as she does, in the uh, nerve center of backroom politics from an undisclosed location in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, let's start on the tragic events that happened yet again we have to talk about another senseless act of violence in an American school. This happened last week in Santa Fe, Texas, where a 17-year-old student shot and killed 10 people, eight students, two teachers, and injured another 10. Uh, literally within weeks of the tragic shootings that happened in Parkland, Florida. It is literally within weeks of other tragic shootings. This is yet something we have to talk about again. Let's tell you what we know. What we know is that a 17-year-old student, we're not going to mention his name, he's already gotten too much publicity, uh, was taken alive at around 7.30 last week. Um, late last week, a uh, the 17-year-old student walked into his high school with a 12-gauge shotgun and a 38-caliber revolver pistol. A fire alarm was apparently pulled, and students started walking out into the hall. Now, the stories that come from the hallway are tragic, and, and again, I don't want to go into them, uh, but the 17-year-old uh, just started humming, started saying uh, woo-hoo, just was almost excited about the events. Uh, the motive is still unknown. There's several theories going around, but we don't want to talk about it because it's just too tragic. But yet again, we have to talk about dead students, dead children in the schools of the United States. We've seen all kinds of stuff. We saw hundreds and thousands of students and parents and teachers and celebrities line the streets of Washington, D.C. and other cities. We saw students walking out of the classroom. We are tired of having moments of silence. Alan Moore, I go to you. How many kids have to die before we start seeing action here in Washington? Well, there appears to be no number. 
um, the, the 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 record for school shootings in the United States is abysmal. Um, there's no convenient, easy way to count them, but what we know is no matter how you count them, there are too many by far, and they continue. Um, every time we blame one thing, a particular weapon, something else may happen. In this case, there was no AR-15, but there was was multiple weapons, 10 dead, and another uh, dozen, I think, wounded. Um, there, the uh, emergency response was on the scene within four minutes of the of the first report. Um, it's uh, we we tear out our hair. There there are those who who, including most of us on the show, who would who would readily uh, agree to certain new restrictions on gun ownership and the and the uh the process by which people can can buy and sell guns that brings out the the uh the NRA folks who claim that government is trying to take your guns away um we've we've not been able to do make much of any progress in that regard but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that that's that's the answer or that there's any easy answer people talk about mental health we need better mental health screening sometimes <clears throat> these shooters uh, show behaviors that had they been flagged and identified there might have been intervention possible but this kid in in texas didn't show some of those classic signs we we wring our hands. We sh- we we share our our thoughts and our prayers, and we mourn and we fear, and we we watch as schools around the country spend more time preparing for um, the the possibility of a mass shooting. You know, Sharmila, I I one one of the tragic scenes out of so many of what we saw coming out of Santa Fe was one student, uh, uh, a young girl who put it, who put it just amazingly is, you know, we shouldn't have, her comment was we shouldn't have to be scared going to school. It's the place that we should feel safe and we don't feel safe anymore. One would think that that reaction, that statement alone would be enough to at least get even some of the harder core Republican uh, that support the hard line of the NRA to at least start rethinking their position. I mean, is it going to take more statements like that, more sound bites like that, and more pictures of tactical response units running into schools to get them to come off? the hardline position of the NRA? Well, I think that you would be better served asking asking that question to these hardline conservative members of the House and the Senate who, who towed the NRA line. And I think that this tragedies like this, tragedies like Partland, tragedies like Santa Fe, 
are going to expose where their true priorities are, and voters are going to see that. The more congressmen who or the more elected officials, I should say, who will blame anything else, you know, from from video games to, you know, lack of God in schools to, you know, lieutenant governor of Texas who blamed abortions or who will, you know, turn around and try to scapegoat any other cause but guns, I, I hope and I pray that you will see voters start to turn against that attitude because it's unsustainable. You know, the American public, our students, our news media, everyone has become so run down by the, you know, horrific regularity of these tragedies that something has to give at some point. And yet, and yet, to your point, Justin, these, you know, these, these elected officials aren't budging. And in fact, in some time, in some cases, they're digging in deeper to their, to their notion that, you know, the Second Amendment is above all and that, you know, guns are an intrinsic part of American life. Uh, but I wanted to actually also comment on something Alan said or kind of add on to Alan's point, which is that yeah, the second absolutely. tragedy of Santa Fe here is that is that everything here worked as it was supposed to and this tragedy still happened. The guns were purchased legally by an adult with no criminal record. The school had armed school resource officers. The kids had done active shooter drills. All these measures were in place to prevent the tragic events from happening, and yet they still happened. And I think that's what makes Santa Fe very different and much more harder to come to terms with than some of these other events. Well, Stonewall, let me stay with you because, you know, you you do bring up a good point is, uh, as Alan pointed out, there was no assault rifle, there was no tactical rifle, and that's been the bane of our existence when it's come to this discussion, this was a shotgun and a 38 revolver. Uh, the assailant was taken alive uh, by local law enforcement. Uh, it, it seems that, uh, in fact, one of the one of the uh, severely injured adults of the 10 that were injured as a result of the shooting was a Santa Fe Independent School District police officer. Uh, so there was a campus school resource officer on scene who confronted uh, the 17-year-old student assailant. Uh, it, it seems like you said everything went right, but <clears throat> if, if everything went right, we still are mourning the loss of eight students and two adults. So what does that tell us? I mean, is there an argument to be made that says, well, you know what, maybe we need to fortify and put more security, more guns in our schools? I mean, is there a legitimate is there a legitimate gripe for that? So I don't know if the question is guns in schools. You know, I, I don't know that the, the student was not taken the shooter was not taken down by the school resource officer. I think he was eventually apprehended by the law enforcement, you know, um officers who came to the scene. No, he was first after, confronted. I said he was first you, he, he was right. He was first cons- he was first student. confronted. Right but then was apprehended by law enforcement officers. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a leap to say, well, you know, obviously having guns in schools works. But certainly the, the presence of school resource officers hopefully prevented him from doing even more damage and causing even more death and destruction than he already did. I think it's too early to say, yes, this is definitive proof that, you know, having, having guns in schools, having armed resource officers works. But, but look, in, in this case, it, you know, it was beneficial, and so you can't—you you certainly can't discount that. Um, 
but I think again the because the shooter was taken alive, there is law enforcement um, has a real opportunity to understand, and, and, you know, the Parkland shooter was also taken alive. Law enforcement has a real opportunity to study these, these young men, to, to understand their motivations, to understand what would motivate them to commit such horrific crimes in their own communities. And I think that's going to be, if there's any silver lining from this tragedy, it's going to be further evidence to help build a profile and to build the sort of list of items that, you know, school officials, that communities should be looking out for to hopefully intervene early and prevent these tragedies from happening again. And, and by the way, for the record, I, I just want to clarify, when we talk about a school resource officer, you know, we are talking about sworn law enforcement. They are, in this case, uh, the school district has its own sworn police department with a chief and a tactical unit, et cetera. Uh, in this case, the the student was initially confronted by a police officer. We call him a school resource officer because that is what they technically are when they are assigned to campus full time. Uh, but the, the 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 school the school police officer was the one who initially c- confronted and uh, began confronting the uh, assailant. But but you know, going back to what Sharma was saying, Alan. Uh, you know, we look at the numbers. We look at 288 school shootings since January 1st of 2009. That's according to CNN. Uh, that is 57 times more than any other than any other of the six G7 uh, countries, and that is, uh, I believe, like uh, 35% over most first and second world countries and yet we still can't get sensible gun control wrapped around our wrapped you know wrapped around our 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 community mindset is is this a statistic that we should be ashamed of as a world leader we should i don't know about shame uh, it's hard to 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 say we should be frightened by it we should be motivated by it to do more than we're doing, you know, I'm, as we're talking about this and I'm, I'm realizing, you know, I'm reminded again that there's no single, there's no silver bullet here. There's no single thing. If we banned guns and confiscated every gun that we, that, that we know to be out there and we couldn't get them, but we kept uh, coming after them uh, with, with 300 or plus million guns in America, that would be a fool's errand. Um, but th- that that doesn't mean we don't try to um, make it harder to get guns and to to put restrictions on the certain kinds of, of weapons. There are restrictions today on certain kinds of weapons, and there aren't enough, and we need some more. And just because an AR-15 wasn't used in this particular case doesn't mean that continues to be the weapon of choice in 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 most of these shootings. Um, we have hardened. The, the the many schools all over the country, in, in, including this one, um, including Parklawn in, in Florida, um, we have school resource officers, armed police, who are in who who are present in thousands and thousands of schools. But the fact that that we still have these shootings doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say 
we're done, we've done enough. And it, what I'm reminded of is a long history in America of automobile safety, where we, we, we used to lose a lot more people in automobile crashes per year than we do today. There was no single fix that was going to resolve the, the carnage on the highways. We, it wasn't we had seat to, belts. It we, wasn't collapsible barriers. It wasn't any of those one things. Right. There were, there, were, there, were, there were many, many things in the construction of cars and the licensing of drivers and punishments for, uh, uh, for drunk or impaired, uh, impaired driving. The, the automobile is safer than it used to be. Um, seat belts um, and and then airbags. These were all things that were controversial. It took years and years and years, and we still have carnage on the highways, and we're still not finished trying to figure out if there are more and more ways to try to reduce the numbers. And I think that 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 sometimes on both sides of of, of this issue the the gun folks say they just want our guns, and some of the 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 folks on the other side say we need far far tighter tougher restrictions on guns, and and we can pick holes or pick apart the argument on either side, um, right. but the fact of the matter is we have to stay focused, we have to stay dedicated, we have to 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 recognize that. The only people that can fix this American problem are Americans, our elected officials, our citizens, and 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 stay vigilant and 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 stay at it. It's you know we right. among ourselves we could come up with some agreements on on certain things we might do with guns. Some of us would do more, some of us would do less, but we would all do some things. Um, but we we're, right. we're stymied. We're, we're in our corners. Um, and uh, playing on fears, playing political games, um, and and uh, in the meantime, kids are continuing to die, and other innocents. It's not, no. it, you know, we're we're focusing on schools, but there have been shootings right. in churches in 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 the in the last couple of years that were that were grotesque and horrendous in in, in their way as well. Um, I want to bring in I want to bring in Audrey Howerton, our, our, our assistant producer, uh, who's up at her undisclosed place in Cape Cod. Uh, Audrey, I want to get your perspective on this. You know, it, it, it's one thing for a bunch of you know old people. Obviously, Sharma is not old, but one could argue Alan and I are. Um, we can armchair quarterback this <laughs> Speak all for yourself, day. Justin. <laughs> exactly. Um, but Audrey, you know, you know, we're finding that the biggest voices are coming from your generation. You know, those in their teens and their early twenties. Um, as he coughs like an old man. Um, the, the the question now comes is Audrey. You know, we saw uh, the march. For life, we saw the uh, the activism that came after Parkland, and we're starting to see some of that following activism in Santa Fe now. What is the end game 
what is the expectation or is there an expectation for an end game in all this for your generation? I mean, I think the obvious end game would be to have no school shootings. I think that would be ideal. But I think at the most basic level, people in my generation just want to be heard in the political process and they want to feel like their voice makes a difference, like we've been told since we first learned about government in high school, that every citizen's vote matters, and we want to see that. Um, I think even high schoolers are using this, this platform, although not all of them can vote, to say, look, we are the future constituents. We want to matter. This is how you show us. Do something about guns. And what's hopeful and, I think, working to their advantage is they're not placing a hard line on what they want done. They just want to be heard on some basic level. Is, is it a matter of, Audrey, that you're going or, or the country is going to start seeing more of an activist voting block from your generation when it comes to stuff like this? I mean, we've seen a lot of talk, but in my opinion, I don't think we're going to see action until November of this year. Uh, is, is this something that's sustainable, that, you know, it's going to be a major factor in the midterms of 2018? I, I hope it will be. I think it will be really telling come the summer months when school is not in session, and fortunately this won't be making headlines because school won't be happening. And I it will be most telling this summer to see if the activism dies down, because if it doesn't, then I think it will be a huge motivator for my quote, apathetic generation when it comes to politics. Um, And I think through activism, if the movement keeps up steam through September, October, it should have a positive impact on my generation's voter turnout. And hopefully it's through activism and not through continued events that it keeps making headlines. Uh, Sharmila, what, what do you think? I have to agree with Audrey. I think that the you can see politicians are already nervous about the attention that this gets because the kids of Audrey's generation, these high schoolers, they really have the moral high ground, right? They are, all they're trying to do is go to school and they're getting shot at. That is not a country that anyone wants to live in. And so you have this group with with a better with a moral high ground, you know, speaking out and really demanding action from our elected officials and I think that if you if our elected officials continue to offer kind of these weak tea excuses about why they can't get anything done or why these kids have to help themselves or, you know, any other of the variety of excuses that a lot of these elected officials have been using, I truly hope that you're going to see them get ousted in November. Again, it's going to depend on how many of these kids are 18 by November, and it's going to depend if their parents and if their communities get just as engaged as they are, because just having a bunch of kids march isn't going to make enough of a difference. It's, they've got to engage their families, their communities, the local citizenry, because change here is going to all happen at the local level. Once the attitude shifts in local communities, you're going to see then there's going to be a domino effect, and it's going to go up. It's going to start locally, okay. then it'll go to the state level, and then it'll become national. 
Okay. Uh, we're going to go to the 845 area code. Uh, I've been a gun collector. 845 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Hi. Uh, how are you doing? I, I just... I had one thing that I, I, I haven't heard brought up, really discussed. Everybody's talking about, you know, about the horror, the tragedy and everything, but nobody's really discussing the root of it, and, and there isn't a solution to it. I mean, I've been a gun collector for 50 years, and so I dealt in it. I'm very active with the Second Amendment groups and everything, and, and if you really track this, um, mental illness is – I've been talking about this for years, and now finally it's coming to light, and people don't want to face it because it's a complex situation. It's easier to just – blame the gun or take the government's attitude on many problems that they deal with, which is the car has a flat, change the car. And that's not the solution. You can't magically just snap your fingers and, and, and say the guns are gone and everything. Where if, if you take a look at they've shut down mental institutions, the asylums, uh, these people aren't getting the help they need. People aren't, um, they should have something in the schools where they can track these kids that need the help. Get them the help that they need in a professional uh, uh, situation, not just let them keep going to school and then we have more shootings and everything else, and they have access to guns. They're going to have access to guns. And if they don't, they're going to find another way. If there's that much evil in somebody's heart, I mean, look at the, the Happy Land fire. A dollar's worth of gas, 80 people killed. Or look at the bath nightmare with, where the, that was the most horrific um, mass murder of children in the school system in the 1920s. It was something, I, I forget right. how many kids were, 70 or 80 kids were killed, and it was from dynamite? They, you know, right. it's a larger picture. Well, uh, caller, let me, let me go to our panel. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start off with you. So the, the, the caller accurately uh, states one issue that, that we talk about constantly, Um and that is uh, the mental illness piece of the problem. It's a piece of the problem, um, uh, and and we we I, I guess I would disagree with with the caller when we say we don't do anything about it. We spend tens of billions of dollars a year um, in all sorts of ways um, on mental health, um, on medicating, on diagnosing, on treating mental health. Um, what we don't do very well in schools is uh, where we have this concentration of people and kids changing and kids subject to lots of forces of growing up and 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 dealing with life as emerging adults and being bullied, um, uh, being like, not being like, being being. Um, challenged to, to to being dared to do this or that thing and hanging out with with other possible um kids who are, and Alan, who are also Alan, you're talking about you're talking about increased Alan, you're talking about increased social pressures that are on children that well, they've never experienced yeah, I mean, I when think you that, and I grew up that, we never that, had social media. Well we didn't have social media, that is certainly true. We but we we did have group pressures and and uh uh, and and what we what I think what, what I was where I was agreeing with the caller was we don't we don't do I don't I don't think we've figured out how to systematically 
uh, ident- look at and identify kids who are particularly challenged and suffering. We do it every day in probably every school in the country at some level, but you have these outliers, um, kids who are really clearly disturbed and have probably been in the, in the eyes of school officials, local police and social welfare officials for some years. That doesn't mean they're, they're fixed, but they've come to the attention. And, and we've had a number of cases of school shootings where people say, this kid's been on our radar for some time. And figuring out what to do when somebody's on the radar is no simple matter because, because we can't just go uh, take some kid away from its family, assuming they're on the, on the verge of a breakdown. We don't do a very good job of guessing that. It's a very imperfect science. In other cases, though, they're in, in like the, the recent Santa Fe school, high school shooting, where people knew this kid, he was kind of a loner, but he was not perceived or known to be uh, a true problem who, where, where there were social media or other clues that he might be on the verge. We have to invest more money and do a better job in identifying those kids, even though I'm also of the, 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 the view that some tightening of gun acquisition and gun ownership rules would be a positive. And that, if that's an inconvenience to, to people who, uh, who are law-abiding, own guns, collect guns, love their guns, so be it. There, there are all sorts of things that we live with in a society that are inconvenient. And we do it for the for the for the greater good. Right. Um, and that right. is not confiscation of weapons. It's it's looking at ways that guns can get into the hands of people um, who none of us. The moment one talks about uh, mandatory checks with private sales, be it through gun shows, uh, online, um, uh, etc., et then it then it becomes this argument that someone wants right. to confiscate weapons. It's nonsense, me, um, but, yeah. but it, it, you know, there's, I, I'm, I'm in, in agreement with the caller on, on trying to figure out better ways in, in the mental health sphere, but me, I'm in disagreement with him. I think we didn't get into it with him about, you know, the, the, cause he didn't say, Current gun laws are fine. I think he 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 said you can't just look at guns, and and I agree with that. You right. can't just look at guns. The Trouble, politicians, you. the politicians may just look at guns. The politicians in this next election, there are right. going to be some elections that may turn right. on one or two sort of simpleton uh, uh, issues. Um, are you right. for this this? gun restriction or not, and if you're not, we're going to vote against you, or if, but we're going to vote for you. Um, it, right. It, the, there's, no sim- there's nothing simple about any of this. Cheryl, let me go to you. Okay. Is there a question? Yeah. I want you to respond to the caller's comments. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I agree with Alan in that I agree and disagree with the caller. I think that, you know, he is, I think he is correct that in most situations, in most tragedies like this, the first thing 
people do is, you know, at least on my side of the aisle, the first call is always about, you know, limiting access to guns and, you know, how do we create tighter, you know, gun laws in this country. And, you know, so the debate does shift to guns very quickly. I think in this case, it hasn't. Um, You know, the caller and Alan are right that you need to put, you know, the, the mental health aspect of this cannot be ignored. And you need to find, A, the common thread between these shooters and B, then the harder part is then how do you intervene successfully? One common thread that you've seen, you know, that started with the, the shooters in Columbine and, you know, that you also saw with the shooter in Santa Fe is that these kids, these kids want to harm themselves. They, they write about suicide. They imagine that, you know, that they're going to commit suicide. The, the shooters in Columbine did so. This student in Santa Fe did not because he ultimately couldn't do it himself, but how do you how do you translate that from something that's in a student's mind that's in this in these children's minds to something that you can actually that they're showing visibly and that you can act on as you know as a parent as a school um as a teacher or a school official or just again as as a law enforcement officer or as a community member i think that that's where the real um that's where the real blocker is right now because there is no easy metric to identify the kids who are who are disturbed to this level that they would commit such an atrocity. There are ways to intervene on students who have behavioral problems or who have drug problems or who manifest their behavior externally, but what do you do when the student keeps it all inside until they explode in something like this? You know, and so that's where I mean, we need to put a lot more research. I, I agree, but you know, at the same time, look, as a Republican, and as a former law enforcement officer, you know, a lot of people expect that, you know, hey, I am all about Second Amendment. I am all about the Second Amendment. I absolutely believe in the Second Amendment. I believe that it is a constitutional right for our American citizenry to bear arms. What I do have a problem with, and this is where a lot of the overzealous, and I'll use that term, the overzealous Second Amendment rights folks get a little bit out in right field is when they start looking at the sensible gun restrictions that we're talking about. Nobody's going to come in, Democrats or Republican, nobody's going to come in and grab and steal their, their weapons. That is rhetoric. That is demagoguery. That is, uh, that, that, that is nothing less than shameless self-promotion by the NRA. It's and and I would piggyback on Alan's point that that um, you know Alan said it very well that you know in in a civilized society like ours and in integrated societies we all make compromises on our individual rights for the greater good. If you look look if there's any anything more sacred to Americans than the Second Amendment it's the First Amendment and there are many many limitations on the First Amendment that you know that we, again, have a, that technically infringe on our, an individual's right to free and uninhibited speech, and yet we all agree to in the name of the greater good. And so I, I agree with, with Alan that the and, point and needs still, to be, I, the debate needs want, to be framed that and way. I still want to jump in, but I still want to jump in and say that, you know, the, the reality still dictates, we are talking about gun legislation that over 75% of Americans, and that's Republicans and Democrats agree to. There is nothing saying that having a comprehensive background check system is unreasonable. Yet we still see the NRA push 
to not have gun checks, uh, reasonable or increased or comprehensive or securing funding for a latest technology of gun background checks. Nobody's going to come in and take the guns. That is an unreasonable expectation. That is demagoguery. But when we talk about the practical use of legislation in protecting our children from incidents like Parkland, like Columbine, like Santa Fe, like Sandy Hook, like, and I can keep going. I think that we have to start thinking practically and not use the party line and demagoguery to prove the point. Democrats aren't going to take all the guns. Republicans aren't just, you know, open carry gun shooting cowboys. There's got to be some compromise, and that's what our country was founded on. Caller, I appreciate the dialogue. I hope you'll keep listening. We're up against a break. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Dan Rittner, who's been so patient, because I know he's chomping at the mouth to get on this, I'm going to let you go first when we talk about the China trade stuff, because, whew, man, we told, we told China, we put them in their place. Yeah, we did see that. This is Macro Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back. It's time for the best political talk show that you never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharma Chari, Alan Moore, Dan Whitner is back. Yay! And joining us from the undisclosed location in Cape Cod is our producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, we're going to move on to, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a show and some muscle. You want to talk about putting somebody in their place. Let's talk China trade. For those of you who don't know, apparently there's been a truce in this big trade war that we've had with China. And uh, what has happened? Well, apparently nothing. According to Treasury Secretary Stephen Hitchin, uh he has declared that the American tariffs would be suspended against China and it contributed to a sense of relief in global markets that the two countries have stepped back from the brink of full-out thermonuclear global tariff war. Uh, according to Nick Mero, a China analyst for the Economist Intelligence Unit, he says, quote, we are not out of danger zone yet. There's still a high risk of a trade war, even if the timeline getting there has been extended. However, a lot of experts are looking at it as we got played by Beijing. There are several people that are saying that China uh, pushed us to the brink, and quite frankly, the White House and the trade team at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue blinked. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's talk about the reality. Uh, let's talk Alan Moore. You were the Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. You know a little bit about this stuff. Uh, let me just put the ugly on the table. It seems like we blinked. Who blinked first, us or Beijing? What do you mean blinked? We kicked some serious Chinese butt here. Oh, wait, maybe not. Um, so, you know, we, we, we need to go back to where we started, which was exaggerated rhetoric, significant, shall we be kind and say, shortcomings in knowledge on the part of the president in understanding what trade deficits mean and what trade relations are and what trade agreements do and how it's complicated to measure what works and what doesn't work. Uh, The president likes to boil it all down to bilateral numbers. Did we sell more or less to country A, B, C, D, E, F, G? If we sold more, then we're winning, and we've got a good trade agreement uh, arrangement. And if we're selling less than we're importing, then we've got a bad deal. And in the case of China, well, we have a deficit in goods and sur- in, in, in goods of over three hundred billion dollars per year. The, when you add services in. It, the numbers aren't as bad, but they're still very skewed. So the, in the president's arithmetic, if the number is just is a negative number, the bigger the, the, it, it's bad, and the bigger the, the negative number, the worse uh, it is. And he decided to make that a, a, a campaign issue and an issue once he became president. China, NAFTA, which involves Mexico and Canada, um, dropped out of the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, uh, a, a really important trade negotiation in, involving uh, uh, 15 or so countries in, in Asia. Um, 
let me say a word on the TPP, though. Remember, Hillary Clinton, who once called it the gold standard of trade agreements, also abandoned it during the campaign. So I thought it was a mistake for them to abandon it, both of them. But but people beat up President Trump and forget that neither presidential candidate was had, had embraced it. It had become something that they both liked to, to take shots at. Um, having said that, the president has, has newly discovered, well, maybe we should reopen those con- re- rejoin that conversation. In the case of China, what, what, the, what, what the Chinese have done is taken the president at their word. You don't like the deficit number. Maybe we can do some work to, to lower that number a little bit. The president jumps on that saying, victory, victory for me. The real problem with China is not, just, is not the absolute numbers. It's their overall behavior. It's stealing intellectual property. It's cutting deals where they use economic leverage, shame on us, to get access to uh, intellectual property. Intellectual property is, is secret ways of making stuff, plans for building uh, big airplanes. Um, it, you know, some people know how to do it, and that oftentimes has been America. And what the Chinese have been very successful at is, is getting access to some of, some of the trade secrets, if you will. Some of it they've done legally. Some of it they've stolen. Sometimes they'll take a product counterfeit it and, and put it out there. But that's a lot less of a problem than it used to be. So Dan we've got, I'll just last two sentences here. We got way out on a limb, which we were pretty critical of on this show. We're, we're, we're coming back now a little bit, which I think is a good thing, but it's not because we've somehow prevailed against China. Um, They've made a few concessions that gives the president some ways to talk about um, some success. We've only suspended the imposition of tariffs. We can bring them back. And we do have this North Korea summit coming up, and China's really, really, really important in that. So we want to be on better terms with China. Not a lot to see here, folks. Except maybe not. We may not be having the summit with China in Singapore. But anyway, that's for another segment. Hey, let me talk uh, Dan Littner. Dan Littner, you know, going off what Alan said, Alan seems to think it was kind of uh, a a situation of mutually assured financial destruction here where uh, we stood and we both had the nuclear option. We were posed to press the big bright red button of tariffs. And we didn't. Do you agree with Alan that this was kind of a mutual decision? It was mutually beneficial? Or, in fact, did we beat China at its own game? I think President Trump has set the Pacific Basin ablaze. The earth has literally parted and set fire. Some of you book-learning folks are going to say that that's geology. I say it's Donald Trump that's that's the reason those volcanoes are active. It's all about Donald Trump's economic policy. Okay, Dan, coming said, back to Earth. What? That said, for the life of me, I can't figure out what Donald Trump is trying to do other than the fact he doesn't know what he's trying to do other than whatever rhetoric he feels the mo- when he wakes up between tweets. Each time he's had an argument, he's given it up wholesale for almost nothing. And, and this is regardless of the merits of the argument. He's just given it away. 
So the great negotiator seems to consistently be coming back to, oh, wait, you mean somebody's going to stand up to me? Well, I didn't really mean that, and, you know, I'm backing down, and the, the, the trade issue at hand, you know, I asked them to – I'm looking at a CNBC article here where tr- Trump demands that China cuts the U.S. trade – the U.S.-China trade deficit by $200 billion. See, he said it. That's a win. What on earth is is the actual reality that's going to come together with these issues? Alan's right. The Chinese have been playing playing an entirely different game. Some of which could be considered, you know, unfair as, as far as the the uh, the the corporate espionage actually stealing trade secrets from companies. It's not widely reported, but it is occasionally reported that the those these pesky little U.S. intelligence agencies that that aren't just monitoring the Russians meddling our, in our elections, also frequently will have phone calls and conversations or more in-depth conversations with the security departments of major companies, in, not just major defense companies like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, but other folks down the chain saying, yes, the Chinese are indeed trying to, to infiltrate your companies electronically and steal your trade secrets. All of that is happening. But in addition to that, you also have the, the, the issue of the government of China actually supports industries pretty directly. That's a different game than we are playing in this country. Yeah, Donald Dan, Trump is addressing on, none of that. He's basically Dan, just throwing a temper tantrum. Dan, let me just jump in real quick because I, I, you bring up a subject that I, I, I want to get yours – and Sharmla's take on, uh, we keep hearing, well, China uh, has government subsidies for their companies. Look at ZTE, look at Huawei, look at any of the Chinese manufacturers that come out of the Asian continent. But for the same matter, some of our premier trade partners, i.e. South Korea, uh, I would go into Europe looking at Italy, Germany, uh, Norway, Sweden, you look at those places, they too also have government subsidies for their manufacturers. We choose not to. So is it fair for us to say, well, China has government subsidies at the same time we're getting ready to do big trade deals with places like Taiwan and South Korea? Well, that's where those pesky little trade agreements come into play that they actually dictate rules and when people can actually bring it to an international arbiter to say that somebody is actually playing unfair. Playing, pulling out of but, the TPP did not exactly help the process. Sharmila, are we, are we in fact playing on unfair uh, playing fields? I mean, if that's the case, then every other major trading partner we have has some sort of government subsidy. Even Canada has government subsidies for their defense industry. Well, yeah. I mean, and I think you see that because in the fact that, and, and this, this uh, was also made clear, you know, back when Donald Trump was t- trying to tie NAFTA negotiations to a border wall and to the immigration issue, which is that the president doesn't really understand how trade surpluses and deficits work. Part of the reason that we have this massive trade deficit with China and all these other countries is because the U.S. consumer economy is deeply dependent on goods from these countries. And yes, 
part of the reasons these goods are cheaper in the U.S. is because they are subsidized by their governments. And so just putting in, I think, you know, industry subsidies within the U.S. isn't going to fix the problem. You've got to look holistically at the issue and you've got to see how is the U.S., you know, how can you ever correct for for a trade deficit where you're right, Justin, you have one disadvantage on one side, which is that, you know, these other countries are subsidizing their industries, whereas we are not. But then on the other hand, you have a large consumer demand for these products. So, Alan Moore, right, but it, when uh, we, uh, when we talk, go ahead, Dan, Dan uh, first, uh, and then I want to go to Alan uh, Moore. But the larger, the larger domestic political side of this, and this is what's frequently overlooked, and that some economists are now saying that they may have gotten a little bit wrong, as far as in focusing specifically on on NAFTA, that the pace of change outpaced the ability of people to change, meaning the workers that were displaced because their jobs left, even though there there were there were there's there were training programs there's money trying to move people to different industries that did not keep up with the actual need so the question is what do you do when those jobs go away the 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 economics of the pie charts don't lie as far as the overall macro the, the macro efficiency but the macro efficiency doesn't help you when you, when your job is down in mexico that's the part and this is where the we're both where Donald Trump started at and Hillary Clinton had to move toward because Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren dragged, dragged her to the left where T, the TPP hit, hit a roadblock because we've been unable to figure out how to deal with it, in part because in this country we don't necessarily think that the government should help you. So the government helped displace you from your job, but w- – it's now your job to figure out what to do next, even though all of your skills may no longer have a place. So if you go from being a steel worker, even though actually steel workers uh, go from being an auto worker to putting on a Mickey Mouse costume because the services industry is, is uh, what's booming, that's not quite the same level of thing. So that's the real question, but it's, not, it's nowhere near the conversation we're having. So Alan Moore, you know, at what at some point we have to start, you know, calling balls and strikes here. Are we putting too much? Are we giving too much attention to the government subsidies that China is providing, or are we not paying enough attention to the preferential treatment that countries like South Korea and Italy and Germany give to their industries to make them more competitive in the world in the world uh, economy? So let, let's not get carried away saying that, that that China advantage is based on subsidies to their industries. That's not the, the that's not probably in the big the big four reasons that we that we buy from China. The first is is lower labor costs, um, uh, fewer worker protections, uh, lower environmental uh, costs as as a society, and hence uh, lower lower taxation and and cost that's sort of built into virtually anything, everything they produce. They have notoriously, China has over the years, not so much lately, 
have been involved in currency manipulation, which is arguably a way to subsidize uh, everything. It just makes their their products cheaper. Um, uh, and and you add those things together, and in, in, in particular industries, particularly consumer goods, clothing, uh, and others that are fairly labor intensive, although they've been increasingly become um, uh, automated in, in, in many ways, um, and where you have highly repetitive work, um, people who are very poor and looking for a chance to make a few dollars an hour jump at that chance and save and send money home. Um, Americans show no inclination to be willing to do that for uh, fifteen or twenty dollars an hour, much less the three or four dollars an hour that that um, uh, that that Chinese or other poor countries uh, in that region and elsewhere. And um, uh, you you go into your closet and look at where all your clothes are made, and you'll find many many countries represented. Very little will have been made in America, and if it was made in America, it was probably done mostly by machines. Um, so the, these these aren't subsidized industries. Now, what what China will do from time in, in some instances, they will definitely invest in a big way in in high tech uh, industries. Uh, they're the, the the world leader in in solar energy panels. Um, and that wasn't because they had some intrinsic advantage. It's because they decided to make massive investments because they thought that was the way of the future. Now, the U.S. also subsidizes. You, does the word Solyndra come to anybody's mind? Um, uh, that was a massive uh, investment. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, Alan, Alan. Hold on, Alan, Alan. You cannot compare Solyndra to the way that South Korea – subsidizes Kia, Hyundai, Samsung, or the way that China subsidizes Huawei, ZTE. ZTE is a great example. Well, I'm, I, I defer to your expertise in how they subsidize those, but, but uh, I, I, would, I would argue that the, the U.S. does massive uh, investment in particular product in, in, in the entire – defense industry the u.s government is a is a huge consumer we create opportunity for uh for high-tech companies to to develop all sorts of uh of, of weaponry um it, it and you whether one calls it a subsidy or, or not when it's you've only got two companies that can make it and maybe you you're paying both of them to make a competing product uh, and then we can sell to Europeans or to uh, to our allies. Um, some of us consider that to be a subsidy of sorts. Um, and uh, when it in the example I was using of solar panels, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars um, to to subsidize um, uh, a number of energy uh, renewable energy enterprises that we thought would work. Um, some did, some didn't. The Chinese are, are are more systematic in trying to move towards uh, a higher tech, higher value product, but nobody's accusing the Chinese of subsidizing their 
their their coffee mug manufacturers, their their candle manufacturers, their clothing manufacturers, where they're competing head on with Vietnam, with Pakistan, with Bangladesh, uh, and so on. They they do some subsidizing. They also have protections, which is a different matter um, in their high tech stuff. You can't very well sell a U.S. car, a produced car in China because it's got very high tariffs. Is that a subsidy for their cars? Well, some people call those tariff protections. The Chinese have said we're going to lower our our tariff protection on imported cars. Is that going to help American cars? Not as much as it's going to help European and Japanese cars, but this is why it's so complicated. Um, you you yeah. you can't do one for you can't do one for one stuff. It's it's complicated. They have some advantages, and they have exploited those advantages. But I think the bigger issue, as I said before, with the Chinese, is not the 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 lower cost consumer goods, but but high tech stuff where they have been very effective and very uh, focused on gaining access to uh, to partnerships with U.S. and European com- uh, countries. Everybody wants to be part of the 1.4 billion people Chinese market that's growingly and wants goods and services and wants Western goods and services. China's trying to control just how much comes in, but they also, uh, because we all want access, we're willing to partner under their terms. And that has begun to uh, catch up with us. And we realize that they've taken our intellectual property, our intellectual property, and then built on it, expanded on it. They take a product that we make and improve it with their own right. significant investment in, uh, in, in education, in robotics. Right. And so on, and and uh, that's where the the bigger threat uh, to the American economy is not. Don't the leave fact off their investment in make, infrastructure. Yeah, you know we don't we don't, what was that, we Dan don't make t-shirts. We don't make t-shirts anymore, and and we 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 may we may print messages on t-shirts, but we don't make them here anymore. Um, what was that, it, Dan, Dan Lipner? You had something about infrastructure. Yeah, well, also all the Asian countries that Alan is referring to and also most of the competitors in uh, European competitors in at least Western Europe and some of the Eastern European competitors that are developing are all investing in infrastructure. One of those things that's been a campaign issue for multiple cycles, but we haven't made a whole lot of headway. So the one of those costs of doing business that is arguably a subsidy is the cost it takes to get product A or part A to location B. And the ability to do that seamlessly for the product chain is a thing that we do not necessarily make it easy for U.S. business to actually conduct business of making things. And Dan is absolutely right. We're moving in the wrong direction. As our infrastructure deteriorates, the cost of moving stuff from A to B very slowly, gradually goes up. And the Chinese uh, in particular, um, who are investing more in their infrastructure than we are, um, uh, are are lowering the cost of moving something from A to B. And all of that gets internalized in the cost of, of, uh, of product. And there's no simple 
answer to uh, to any of that. Okay, very good. Hey, uh, round the horn real quick. Uh, win, lose, or draw the U.S. position in this China tariff war as it happened this week. Sharma, I'll start with you. Win, lose, or draw for the U.S.? Lose. Alan Moore. Draw to very slight win, a win that that, that will be exaggerated in the conversation, but but just very marginal. Shocking! The White House exaggerating. Uh, Dan Lipner, win, lose, or draw. The volcano is going to win. <laughs> will you stick with the question, Dan? You're killing me, bro. <laughs> killing me. Uh, and by the way, hey, just so you all feel comfortable. The White House has dispatched Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross to help pave over and make nice with our Asian partners. Oh, happy, happy, joy, joy. What could possibly go wrong? Hey, uh, when we come back, in speaking of requests and smoothing things over, uh, in case you didn't know, apparently the White House wants to investigate the investigators. We're going to talk about that. I need both attorneys to stay on because I need legal advice on this one. This is the best political talk show you never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
is backroom politics. And we're back for the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Alan Moore, Charmachari, Dan Littner, our associate producer, Audrey Howerton, at the non-disclosed location in Cape Cod, and I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the White House wanting to investigate the investigators. Uh, in case you didn't see it, over the past 72 hours, the president's gone on somewhat uh, a Twitter tirade, if you will, regarding the status of the Department of Justice, the investigators supporting the FBI and the special counsel's office. Uh, it, it almost seems like it's um, uh, it, it almost seems like it's just kind of a, a rite of passage now. Every every weekend around Sunday. Around 8 or 9 a.m., we're going to see the tirade. Uh, the reality is, is what he's asking for is a special counsel uh, to investigate corruption at the FBI and the Department of Justice. Uh, it is a bizarre request that seems to have maybe minor support from those on, in, in Congress uh, it does have some support from the House Intelligence Community uh, Committee, rather led by uh, Congressman Devin Nunez. So the bottom line here is number one: is what is the president trying to achieve here? Is there a legitimate concern that there was corruption and a spying effort by the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation? On the president and his campaign, let's go to uh, let's let's start off with Charmla Achari. Number one, does it make sense that the president would want a special counsel to investigate a special counsel? Well, it makes sense that this president wants that, but <laughs> typically no. Typically, no. The the president has of the United States has typically, even though they do have the authority of the Justice Department, they have typically stayed away from interfering in its affairs and sort of, you know, issuing orders such as the current one for, you know, the fear of appearing partisan and for wanting to lend these institutional these institutions credibility and to, you know, not drag them into partisan politics. The idea is that the law should function above mm. politics. And so that's why traditionally presidents have stayed away from the affairs of the Justice Department. You saw with President Nixon when he tried to intervene, that ended very badly for him. So the short answer is no. Typically, this is not typical, but because this is Donald Trump, I think, you know, unfortunately, this sort of interference and politicization of the Justice Department and our law enforcement agencies generally is becoming depressingly normal. Dan Lipner, you know, we have the um, we have the president that's literally sitting there getting involved, either directly or indirectly, about a, um, a about a criminal investigation that's going on. Uh, it, it, it strikes me that that there would be an issue where. If he's not, if he's trying to prove that the justice system is stacking up against him, he's not helping himself out by 
possibly obstructing justice yet again, or am I reaching too far on that one, Dan? Dan Lipner. <laughs> You've left him speechless. Did I? Sorry, sorry. I had muted myself by accident. I apologize. The uh, Let's just t- take a moment and, and deconstruct the Donald Trump theory of the case. The after the investigations of Hillary Clinton where she supposedly got off scot-free when, when Comey, days before the election, uh, reopened the investigation and then closed the investigation that arguably helped elect Donald Trump president, that the Justice Department was infiltrating the, the president's campaign and continuing this investigation of the now president, Donald Trump, to what end? Could it be that the Justice Department really wants Mike Pence to be president of the United States? How powerful is Mike Pence? Isn't he really the person pulling the strings? Isn't he really the big winner here? This is an Oliver Stone level conspiracy theory that you have to, that you have to buy into for the theory of this case to hold water. There is nothing else. So Mike Pence obviously must be pulling the strings because he wants Donald Trump to be impeached. So this is the only way for a President huh? Pence to occur. Yep, that's got to be it. <laughs> Alan Moore, you got to give credit to Rod Rosenstein. I mean, Rod's holding his his position. He, he, did he play it smart when he was approached by this and said, yeah, if I get a formal request, I'll process that request like I do all requests for an investigation. Uh, is is Ron? Rose, I mean, are we seeing what could be the beginning of a Saturday Night Massacre, or is DOJ playing it smart and playing the game Trump style? Well, I, I don't know that. I think they're playing it very smart, not because they're playing it Trump style. I, I think they're doing what what needed to happen. Let's. Let's add to the to, to Dan's review. Um, over the course of the campaign and for some time before that, it became well known to our intelligence services and the intelligence services of some of our allies that the Russians were mucking around in elections in, in Western democracies, not just the U.S. Um, and they, they continued to. We weren't sure what their motives were at the time that, that we were expressing these concerns. Donald Trump, neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton were the uh, uh, were the nominees. Clinton certainly always looked like one. Trump really right. didn't look like one. And the, the, the Russians were mucking around, messing around, trying to figure out how much power do we have? How much how much how much uh, uh, trouble can we generate? And the intelligence services, the, the intelligence services went and 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 talked to the uh to the Clinton campaign and the Trump campaign and said this is what we think is going no this is what we know is going on out there and we want you to be aware of that and be on the alert and we 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 would urge you to report to us any contacts any outreach that might be made because we we are convinced they are trying to influence our election. Um, that was a message apparently given to both campaigns. We don't know yet, but we'll probably find out who on the 
uh, in the Clinton campaign was told and what they might or might not have reported back over the course of time. Right. What we what we're pretty right. what we're pretty sure of is that nobody in the Trump campaign reported anything back to the FBI, even while half a dozen or seven or eight people from the campaign were engaged in different kinds of conversations with the Russians. Um, and right. this was no this was known to our intelligence services because we were listening in and we so we tell the Trump campaign we the 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 the, the, the U.S. government intelligence services the Russians are trying to do this please let us know if there's any conversations okay right. yes sir we'll do it and then we hear nothing but we know that conversations are going on at which point the the uh, the FBI starts wondering. What's going on here? I wonder if, if we could find out anything. So they they hire right. this guy, apparently a guy named yep. Steph Halper, uh, who's been a Republican, who's been around since uh, the Ford administration, um, but a teacher in in Cambridge and and so on, to nose around. So he starts making some inquiries because uh, he knows some of the people um, in the Trump campaign, talks to them, seeking information. I don't know what he got, what he reported back, but but it was but 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 we can acknowledge this that the FBI had sent apparently the FBI had had sent uh, a, a a person under their employ into the the Trump uh, campaign, if you will, to some of the senior advisors seeking information about possible right. connections between the Trump campaign. Yeah. And the Russians and possible collusion. So when, Alan, when all of this Alan, became hold on, known, hold on real quick. yeah. Alan, hold on real quick. I, there's there's a caller that's been holding on that wants to talk about this subject. There's a caller that's been holding on for about almost seven minutes. Let me just get to the call real quick. Caller on the six one two area code. You're on with backroom politics. What's your question? Yes. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Now I think the first question I, I'd have to put to everyone first and foremost is. If Russia interfered with the election, to what degree did they affect um, the actual result? Like, how much do you attribute, let's say, on a one, zero to one hundred percent scale? Did you think that they actually led to Trump actually winning? That's a good question. I'll start with uh, Alan. Since I cut you off, I'll let you start off the answer to the caller. <laughs> well, so so I'm one who believes that they were involved, that they had some impact. They might have made the difference. You know, you you take a handful of states that 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 Trump won, and say, okay, why did he win in Michigan? Uh, why did he win in Pennsylvania? Now, some of that had to do with the fact that there were people who liked his message. That part of that had to do with people did not like Hillary Clinton, and part of it had to do with the fact that there was some manipulation going on, social media messaging, and so on, that fed the proclivities, fed the the. Uh, the the instincts of of some of those voters. Um, it you don't have to affect too many people with some provocative uh, 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 social media messages that are slightly exaggerated um, to conclude it's possible. It's possible that the Russians made the difference. What are the odds? That's a that's a that's a hard one because even people way smarter than me in terms of statistical analysis who've looked at all of these campaigns aren't sure. I'm open to the possibility, you know, maybe it's, let's say it's one in 10, let's say it's one in five that, 
that uh, uh, that the Russians actually made the difference where it mattered. That's something that that President Trump drives him crazy, and that's that that's that, that's what feeds into this whole uh, Steph Halper business. Steph Halper's looking around, mucking around, spying, if you will, on what's going on inside the campaign. Was that politically motivated? What was that all about? Because the president is so fearful that somehow somebody, that history is going to say, you didn't really win it fair and square. Now, my view is he did win it fair and square, that you don't go back and do a do-over, but that there were problems and weaknesses in our system that not only the Russians, but some other Americans, uh, right. <laughs> if you will, exploited wait, and putting messages wait, out Brian, there. And, and hold, on, so, hold on, before you move on. Before you move on, let's yeah. just address one thing. So you're, you're saying that the Russian interference basically was a social media campaign. That's what you're, yes. that's what you're attributing it to? And you really yes. think that that's even a big deal? What's, I mean, so you're not saying that the Russians changed the votes. You're not saying that the Russians did anything other than basically they went on social media and they pushed a pro-Trump message. That, that's it? No, no, that's inaccurate. I'm just going off what he yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that said... They use no, social no, media. No. That's, yeah. that's 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 a minimum. There was anti Hillary, anti Hillary Clinton stuff, pro Trump stuff, and then and then just some anti. Is there some other uh, racist stuff? Okay, it was a turn off. So, and, is it and, and Ellen, it's not just anti. Hold on, I'm putting everybody. I'm putting everybody on mute. One person at a time. Okay, uh, caller, what's your comment back to Alan? Okay, well, first and foremost, if if we're talking about just bias coverage through social media, Facebook, whatever it may be, at the same time, you'd also have to point out the bias coverage in the, in the actual general mainstream media itself. And how about the fact that NBC held on to the Access Hollywood tape conveniently until, I believe, what was it, late September, just before the second debate? You don't think that was calculated and timed out just right and that they did that specifically to hurt Trump and help Hillary? And so I find it interesting how liberals – bring up stuff like this only when it's against them. Notice how you conveniently ignore the fact that in 1983, Ted Kennedy basically worked directly with the Kremlin in a campaign against Reagan. And that doesn't even get brought yeah. up. That was, that was, there was no charges filed against that. Okay. It wasn't a big hype. But at the end of the day, let's just be honest, it was, it was a so, humiliating so defeat. Me, I get it. Caller, so, let, let, let me address come up this. With hold on. No, hold no, on. Let, let me, hold on. He was, hold on. He was, everybody, he everybody hold on. Hold on. Alan, hold on. Hold on. Let me let me address this real quick, okay? Caller, I'm going to answer your comment. Number one, let, let's get real about this, okay? You're talking about you're talking about social media, and I want to put it out there, okay? Let's be clear. Number one, social media technology, whatever you want to call it, the internet has created a lazy electorate in this country. This country will buy whatever 30-second soundbite is put on front of them, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC. They buy what, what they see on the Internet as gospel. The Russians know it. And what they've done is, and, and hear me out on this, what they've done is they have taken advantage of our civic laziness. No one in this country has taken any personal responsibility for the way that they are governed and the way that they vote because of what happened, and Russia manipulated that. That is not my opinion. That is fact. 
that is fact that the intelligence community, not just ours, whether you're Republican or Democrat, even, even hardcore Republican members of Congress agree, who support the president, they also agree on the fact that they, in fact, know that Russia took advantage of our country's electorate that is lazy. They put it up on social media. They put up the state news posts. You can, you can make claims about NBC, CNN, and everything. I can come back, and I'm a Republican. I can come back and say the same thing about Fox News. I can say the same thing about Breitbart. I can say the same thing about that lunatic Alex Jones and Info. But you, but you can't say this the same. It's, it's not I, the same number. I can absolutely no, say it's the exact same. So you're telling me that they're the same number? No, you're not being honest. There's not the same number of conservative networks compared to liberal-leaning networks. It's not close. That's why you can only cite Fox as the only major news network that leans to the right. That's obvious. No, 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 It's not a rabbit chair. It's Harvard put out a study this is last summer clearly demonstrating that. That was not even It's not even a debatable point. Clearly, in this last election, the media was basically 90% pro-Hillary, anti-Trump. It's not my opinion. You can look the study up yourself, and you can see it for yourself. Call it. Clearly, Harvard's Caller, not a conservative bias. You know, they're not going to. Okay, not gonna be wait, okay but the study you're talking about, okay, the study you're talking about, the the, the 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 flawed study on its face. I know exactly what you're referring to. The study is, and this is one of those things. It compares positive and negative coverage. But in order for that study to hold true, you. For for the shooting that we started talking about at the beginning of the show, in order for that study to be balanced and according to that same kind of basis, there would have to be positive and negative reporting of the shooter. Otherwise, the the reporting is obviously biased against him. That's the equivalent of that Harvard study. What you're saying is accurate. However, the actual interpretation of the of the evidence at hand is completely left off. So it, it's a bit challenging for you to say that, since the while you could say that it was pro-Hillary, the you you still also have to talk about the various different issues that are at hand and at, at play for both candidates. And there were plenty of negative things said about Hillary, and there were plenty of negative things said about Donald Trump. The Access Hollywood tape—it's hard to come up with a with a positive spin on that tape. Similarly, it's hard to come up with a positive spin. Uh, for Hillary, for the 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 uh, reopening of the email the email investigation. That said, once it came to a conclusion, people can come to their own conclusions. When you're talking about the media ethics, as far as whether or not the Access Hollywood tape was held to the last second, okay, there's an argument there. However, that argument has nothing to do with legality. When the when we're talking about the investigation of the of the Russians manipulating the the election, we're talking about also, and while collusion is the word that is getting thrown out there, it's actually, and this is to Alan's point, those conversations that were happening within the Trump Tower and parties that were involved with the Trump campaign, in which case you're actually talking conspiracy. That conspiracy is actually a crime. NBC holding on to the Access Hollywood tape, you can, you can throw out the ethics of that, and I will be happy to debate the ethics of it. It is not, in fact, cr- 
criminal. So all the way around to the Mueller investigation. That's having to do with whether or not there's actually anything criminal involved. Wait, wait, In wait, wait. Well, hold on. You, you're, skip, you're skipping the main point, though. Your initial point, when we talked about the Russians interfering, you put it out there. We're talking about getting on social media, putting out anti-Hillary, pro-Trump propaganda through social media. That's, that's your whole basis of the thing, first and foremost. So the issue at hand is from the from a liberal perspective. No, no, it was more. Have, it, have, it was more than that. There, there's no, also we're, the we're, and this we're talking is something about we don't, we don't know the full extent about. That, that there's is, also the issue of, of of the of the tampering. There's also the issue with the actually tampering of, with voter rolls, and this is something that's a little bit hazy. It's been reported on, but the investigation is still unclear, and it no, was not unclear. actually. That that's already been that's already uh, cleared up. There's nobody nobody unless you're very far to the left is even making that argument anymore. That that's that's about okay. Hold on, hold on. First, first of all, let me let me do this. Let me do this. Number one, caller. Number one, in, unless you are a member of the Mueller investigation team, and it, it, if and by the way, let's be clear about this. The Mueller investigation team is primarily comprised of Republican members of the Department huh. of Justice. Let's be clear about yeah, that. Yeah, right, man. Second of all, yeah, yeah, right. hold on. No, 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 no. You know better. Give me your time. Hold on. You've hold got on. 13 Democrats. Let's be clear about this. So, in Justin, West, you're digging holes for Democrats. yourself that are not helping you. Yeah, well, they're not Democrats. They're not Democrats. So, anyway, anyway, call or appreciate it. I hope you're well, they, 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 they donated. You're both wrong. Sorry, let me be. You know, they're, 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 they, they did give more money to Democrats, but their career prosecutors, career Justice Department people. They're not career political types. So I throw no, both I of your arguments that. out, that they're, that they're either Republican no, or, or no, Democrat. No, 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 no. Clearly I'm not, not Republican. I'm not going to throw that. Yeah, you call them Republicans. Anyway, so... Robert Mueller is... You know, let, let's, let's, not, let's not shoot the messenger here. Let's wait and see what that, what that, that study comes out. The original question that the caller had was, did, what do we th- what differ- how, what are the odds that the Russians made the difference? I think that all other things washing out, the Russians maybe a 20 for me, Alan Moore, 20 percent chance that the Russians made the difference. That doesn't mean that the election was illegitimate. It means that we have to be as a country a lot more vigilant than we have been in, in the understanding the forces out there that can make a difference in, in our election. The caller's absolutely right about uh, a, a bunch of other forces. Bias, bias is in the media. Yes. Um, and then voter suppression on the other side. Um, Hillary Clinton, a lousy candidate. Donald Trump tapping into something that, 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 that people did not recognize. Um, figuring out or getting lucky and, and taking advantage of, of an electoral system that that uh, work to his favor. But, you know, but, there, there are a lot of different individual things that that one can say made the difference, starting with the candidates themselves. I just happen to believe that the Russians exploited something that we all need to pay attention to. Um, I don't happen to think we're going to find collusion, um, but I'll let uh, wait wait for Mueller to speak in that regard. And, but the fact that the, that the Russians did, you know, more power to them to figuring it out. There were plenty of Americans trying to do some of the same stuff up. from Cambridge Analytica and, and elsewhere. Um, Alan, so I, that, I that's, that's all point, I'm, that's that all I'm saying. Early, 
I made that point early on. I made that point early on by saying, look, we bought whatever was put in front of the American electorate, bought whatever they saw on social media and the Internet. They bought it as truth. Well, because they didn't see any of the you trashed the you trashed the American electorate as being stupid and vulnerable and gullible, and there's certainly aspects of that. But you know, people also tend to believe what they believe before it starts, and then they have anger that that we've we've talked about at great length about about the the hand that they got dealt in the post uh, recession uh, response, um, the pockets of of uh, in- income inequality and lack of opportunity and the sense that that certain people uh, get favored opportunity at the expense of others. There's just a whole host of issues that people live with each and every day. They want to blame somebody, and they, they but, but found uh, some convenient Here's what I'm going to say to you, Alan. Here's what I'm going to say to you, Alan, about that is, you know, if, if, the thing about it is when – and this election proved it, okay? If people had done their homework, I mean, like, when we grew up, a lot of us, Sharmila, you're, you're young. Uh, I don't know if you <laughs> remember a, a time when – what's that? Nothing. <laughs> I'm just saying, Sharmila, you're young. But, I mean, for, for the older crowd, we remember a time when there were three – different networks where we got our news from ABC, NBC, CBS. It was boring. We got our hardcore news from the print media, and it was boring. But we had to literally dig and do research and look at how we voted. We voted and hopefully did enough research to pick the candidate that best represented how I, as an individual voter, wanted to be wanted to be elect or who I want to elect as somebody who would represent me in either local state or federal government. We don't do that anymore. We have allowed social Justin, media you're to painting a past narrative. that did not exist. You're painting a past Yes, you studious, thoughtful readers, thinkers, uh discussants, they didn't most most people um, did what their neighbors did, did what their parents did. You know, now there's a lot more outlets, a lot more opportunities. It can get confusing. But I think the people, the voters of the country have, have been lazy throughout my lifetime, and, old, and I'm older than you are, um, and, and, uh, and have always been subject to a, a whim. It just what didn't, wasn't something that came via social media. Um, it, 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 in times past, it was you know, something that your union convinced you you should do, um, let's say. Or, on the other hand, what, uh, wow. uh, what, what some, you know, somebody at the country club said you should do, uh, what your boss said you should do. Um, it, 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 we, have, we have not had a long history of people sitting there studiously listening to the various news outlets, reading the papers, and, and, and making a close, careful judgment. I wish we had. That's always been a minority. I will tell you, then, then, you know what? Then I'm glad that I grew up in an area that was part of that minority, Alan. Everybody I knew growing up, you know, they, they looked at, you know, they didn't just take it off of face value. They said, you know, this guy said X. They read it in the paper. This guy said X. 
If that guy said X and he said, well, what does X mean? They actually said, you know, hey, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help my my job. That doesn't help the way I'm taxed. That doesn't help the way that I'm protected by the government. I, I just think that, you know, that we've created such a lazy electorate these days that I think if we took more civic responsibility on the way that we were governed and looked at some of the claims that we see, we wouldn't have the problem with fake news. We wouldn't have the problem with the demagoguery. And I think we'd have a lot more civil dialogue going forward in politics. That's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. Right, but anyway. you have to have interest in this stuff, Justin. I mean, that's the thing. You, know, you have people who are so disengaged because there's so much – because there are other forms to entertain themselves, right? Like – you know, I grew up in the minority of people, you know, from middle school. I was really interested in politics. I remember in my seventh grade English class talking about, you know, Newt Gingrich and the contract with America and my, stu- my fellow students looking at me like I had three heads, right? You're always going to have people who are more engaged and more interested in this topic, and you're always going to have people who, you know, don't really care that much, who want to dedicate their energies to other things. And so I think you're right that we, you know, that our electorate is lazy, but I don't know that that's an American issue. I just, I wonder if it's just a human issue. Dan, Americans are worse. Dan, you're talking to Americans. Sorry, I'm actually walking in the hallway. That could be an improvement right there. (laughs) The, The number of Americans that were paying attention to Kanye West's ridiculous comments and supporting Trump I can guarantee you more of them know, more Americans know about that than know about anything about what Donald Trump has been talking about with trade. And I promise you Donald Trump's nonsense on trade has had a far greater impact on people's economic existence than anything Kanye West has said the last two weeks. Well, then again, we're also, we also are living in a world where uh, a a Kardashian can tweet about a piece of technology, I give you Snapchat, and can drive a stock down because she said she doesn't like Snapchat anymore and drive 25% of its market value into the hole. I mean, that that's a problem. That's a serious problem. But we're not going to solve that today. We're not going to solve that today. No, no, but on that same point, when the, when the president not mentions something about Amazon and takes an act, actually takes an action directing the postmaster general to move, that actually does affect something that is a, a company that, that is moving goods around the country that is a pretty powerful mover in the economy. That's a bit more important, don't you think? No, but, nobody, but here's the thing is, do you see that on social media? Do you hear the electorate talking about the number of jobs that Amazon has created and continues to support, including union jobs, through their trucking, through their warehouse operations, through even the postal service? There's no argument that Amazon has been able to help sustain a U.S. postal service. Uh, Yeah, I, I, I I think nobody talks about that, but Kanye West talks about Donald Trump, and everybody, it's, it's front page news. I mean, I, I, again, I, I get frustrated. Right, but I, get, I get. 
it's it's one thing to Go blame ahead. people, and and you're right. But at the same time, there's a culpability in the news media, right? Kanye West tweets get publicity, and they get covered on CNN and all you know, and legitimate news networks because you know these news news networks know that people will watch them, right? Back in the golden day, you're referencing Justin when there were only three channels, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. They would just show the news of the day, whether you were interested in it or not. And now you have a media on both sides of the aisle that's catering to what people want to hear. And of course you're going to get – so of course you're going to get a lazy and uninformed electorate. And so there, well, I think you have a bit of a chicken have. and egg problem there. Oh, oh, absolutely. But you know, when, when, when people are asking the question and saying, wait a minute, why was Russia so effective – in doing what they did, they, they knew this. They played us. They absolutely knew that they could sit there and put stuff out on social media, light a spark, and it would get people, and to Alan's point, it would get people that, you know, had been dealt a crappy deck because either the Republican or the Democratic Party had forgotten about them, uh, had lost jobs, had lost wages, took a hit, in the recession of 2008 and, and, you know, quite frankly, were angry and they bought into some of this false rhetoric. And there was yeah, legitimate misinformation was. going around. When I worked on the campaign Absolutely. in Ohio, we had to deal with a number of social media hoaxes that we originally thought were coming from, you know, right-wing groups. But later we realized they were coming from Russian bots. There were memes and Facebook messages and sort of viral videos spreading around with misinformation about anything from and, – and not necessarily about candidates, but things about the democratic process in terms of how to vote or, you know, when you could vote or where you could go vote. All these – they also took advantage of our lack of civic knowledge on that scale. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Alan's, well, I mean it, Alan's right. I mean, go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just going to add, add to, to what Charmless says. So, you know, whether or not the, the, the Russians made, made this difference, because we know now that it wasn't just the Russians who were, who were playing in this game. Um, they were particularly focused, particularly effective. Um, but, the, the, secret, the secret's out. The genie's out of the bottle here. And everybody who is interested in elections and in politics is trying to figure out, you know, we can keep the Russians out, but can we keep, can we keep Americans or other third parties uh, clean? Can we protect the system from um, distortion, from manipulation? Um, yeah, elections have always been about some of those things. It's just that there wasn't a, a quick, uh, uh, easy way to get access to literally tens of millions of people every day. The way the way Facebook uh, uh, gives us that access. That's what's really new. The Russians were early adopters and figured it out. But now every campaign out there, every campaign advisor. Um, where it matters, where it where it works, and particularly in national elections, but also for some regional and state elections, um, we're, we're going to have to, as a society, really think hard about uh, our vulnerability uh, here through these 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 uh, through these new mechanisms for communication, which can uh, distort reality, distort facts, and influence behaviors. Um, 
uh, in ways that ultimately are not really reflective of the true feelings of uh, uh, of the electorate um, or potentially uh, so. And that's the challenge before us. Yes, let's figure out the Russians. Let's stop the Russians. But what about everybody else who wants to do what the Russians did because the opportunity presents itself? Right, and that's the thing we have to keep in mind, and this is the larger thing, and even to the caller's point, for the biases that may or may not be out there, the, the element of truth or untruth is part of the debate. Now, while I don't think – while I do think the Russians played a hand on this, I don't think they ever in a million years thought they could have gotten Donald Trump elected. What seems clear, and this is what the game plan has been, not just in this country but also through their, their efforts in Europe, is just to sow chaos. So the support of Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton or third-party candidates – to, there's even some evidence of the you know, Black Lives Matter or even the, the Antifa or in, in insert other groups that are seen to, to most of us who are in mainstream politics, while they are out there, we basically view them as outliers and nuisances. However, if amplified by somebody who wants to do nothing more than so chaos, Suddenly, there's, there's chaos under, on every street corner. These things are growing, and they're there to get you. And while mainstream media might not pick it up, and this is the, where, the, where Facebook comes in with outlets that we've never heard of producing news items that are – and i using news in air quotes – that once people can no longer identify the difference between – a MSNBC, even a Fox News, when, and I'm carving out Fox News, the Shepard Smith, the actual reporters of Fox News. Even Fox News reporting things that are actual facts from things that are just trying to pollute the airwaves with noise and slow confusion. That's part of the problem that we need to identify. And for the lazy electorate, you can say they're lazy, but most people are working hard trying to just live their lives and aren't spending their time thinking about politics for fun like we are. Helping them <laughs> figure it out is what we have to do. And trying here's to, and, the, and here's holding the, the credible media to the fire and would feet to the fire when they screw up, they sure as hell better publicly correct it because that's what makes mainstream media different from the noise. But but here's here's the thing though here's the thing, Dan is number one I don't want to lump in just Fox News I mean Fox News I would concur is a legitimate journalistic agency as I would MSNBC CNN where I get a problem is when people start look Infowars is not a legitimate journalistic organization. Alex Jones is about as legitimate a journalist as the pet guinea pig I had in my fourth grade class. That is just biased demagoguery that's put up on the Internet that people buy into. And there is stuff on the left 
that does the exact same thing. The reality is until we start getting people, I understand that they don't have to pay attention day to day on politics, but when it comes to election time, you know, there's a civic responsibility for everybody, especially the ones that complain the loudest to at least do some at least digging on how you're governed and who you're picking to govern you. That's all I'm saying. And that and that's a message that has been lost through the decades and has been extremely lost in the noise of social media and instant access information. That's just our point. Hey, listen, we've only got 10 minutes left. Uh, number one, uh, around the horn, because we were going to talk about this a little bit detail, but we kind of got on a tangent, but it was great dialogue. North Korea, President Trump. President Trump says that it's not going to happen on June 12th. Do you agree? Alan Moore, do we have the June 12th summit? Yes. You do? Okay. Dan Lipner? I think the volcano is going to win. <laughs> I still don't understand. <laughs> um, I think not enough information. The situation is so fluid and changes on such a dime that I can't make a prediction one way or the other. You is, sound is, like is me. Donald, <laughs> I mean, is Donald Trump, I get the impression that this might be something Donald Trump might be playing well. Uh, is, 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 is there something that maybe we're missing that, because uh, it, it looks like now Kim Jong-un is got the upper hand. Am, am I wrong in that, Alan? Yep. Nobody has the upper hand at this point. You've got two very unpredictable, egocentric uh, guys um, sort of jockeying for position, um, but with super high stakes. Um, you know, I still think that they'll have a meeting because they'll – find it in their interest to have a meeting um, predicting an outcome that, that, that gets really, really, really hard. Um, the, the, the South Korean president uh, is here uh, in, in, uh, in the U S today meeting with the president. You know, he wants this to happen. I think, I think the North Koreans want this to happen. Um, you know, they're playing with us. We're, we're playing with them. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm not optimistic that, that they're going to come out of the, the, this meeting, which I think will occur um, uh, with, with, with some great grand package. Um, but I'm glad they're talking, and, I hope they, I, and I'm hope, hopeful that they'll meet, if, if not on the 12th, then, then, uh, then re- relatively soon thereafter, because dialogue is our, our best hope. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There is absolutely uh, no that, chance that North Korea is going to go nuclear free. None. Zero. Why? Why would they? Because it's the only thing that keeps the dictator in power. Would it wouldn't it make economic sense? Wouldn't it make wouldn't it give them better economic a, a better economic future if they were to say, you know what? For a huge influx of money, aid, and economic boost that makes my people happier and more likely to keep me in power, yeah, I'll give up some nukes. nukes that You're dealing with a dictator who... Dictator versus 
making giving economic freedom to my people and giving them an idea they might have alternatives other than me. Huh. I was, let's think that math through. Yes, yeah, so you're dealing with a family of dictators who has had no problems with imprisoning their own people, you know, starving them, beating them, torturing them, inflicting secret police on them. Do you really think the Kim family has the best interest of the North Korean people at heart? Absolutely not. No, I'm, no, I'm just, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Well, I'm just trying to. It, it, it's a different, it's a different issue than what than, than what Dan said. It, it's not the nuclear weapons is not what gives. Uh, the Kim family, the iron fist over the North Korean people. Um, they all have the iron fist with or without nukes. The, the real question, I mean, I, I, I'm not expecting them to give up nukes, but I sure as hell wouldn't say zero chance the way the way the volcano said it. Um, I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, go, go that far into the crater um, with that, with that smoking hot, uh, oozing lava flow uh, with Dan. I think that we don't know that uh, uh, that what the chances are. They're small. They're very small. I, I would put them at something greater than zero. Well, we'll see. We'll see. There is more likely uh, to be a Trump Hotel Pyongyang than there is to be a nuclear-free North Korea. <laughs> All right, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, We've got only a few more minutes left, and unfortunately, we're not going to have time. Uh, although, uh, let me bring in Audrey Howerton. Audrey, how did we do in last week's uh, staff leaving pool? Audrey? Again, no, again, oh. nobody left the White House, which is kind of crazy. That's two weeks in a row that nobody's left the White House of significant note. Uh, we're getting into a dry spell here. Uh, okay. Uh, we continue on with the gang. Uh, this week we'll start with Sharmla. Sharmla, who are you going to go with? Who did, first of all, Audrey, who did Sharmla pick? Kristen Nielsen. Okay. And uh, she did not leave. She is still there. Uh, Sharmla, who do you pick this week? Hmm. This is a tough week. I'm going to go with John Bolton. <laughs> really? Interesting. Okay. He's going to pull a Scaramucci. Dan Littner. Oh. Uh, Audrey, who did Dan Littner pick last time? Dan, you had Sarah Huckabee. Dan Littner, who are you going to pick? As much as I want to stay with, stay with Sarah Huckabee, even though I think her soul has already left, uh, I'm going to go with the former governor of Texas, Rick Perry. Really? Ooh. Okay. Ooh, that's an interesting Ooh, a bowl, a bowl, a bowl uh, Alan, new idea. Yes. It is. Alan Does Dan Moore? have some insider information? I don't know. Dan, do you have insider information? <laughs> if I told you, it wouldn't be inside anymore. <laughs> Valid point. Valid point. <laughs> Alan Moore. As long as I pick Pruitt, and as long as I can pick Pruitt, I'm going to pick Pruitt until I change my okay. mind. Okay. There it is. Very good. Uh, Audrey, who did I pick last time? Emmett Flood. Huh? You had Emmett Flood. <laughs> I don't uh, you know think what? I'm going to go with. I'm, I'm going to go with. Um, 
you know what? I'm going to go with Ron Rosenstein. Ooh, okay. okay. I, I think, I think, I think this is. I think we're being telegraphed a punch. I think they're going to take out Ron Rosenstein. That's my pick. Anyway, that being said, on behalf of Alan Moore, Sharmla Chari, uh, Dan Lipner, and Admiral Ken, who will be back with us next week, hopefully. And uh, and on behalf of our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Audrey, you've been working really hard. Good job. Thank you. Uh, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week on the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Blog Talk. It's radio's own Backroom Politics. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can also follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. Please subscribe to our From the Cutting Room Floor daily briefing on everything happening inside and outside of Washington. Uh, that you can subscribe to by going to www.backroompolitics.org. Check out our website. You can also subscribe for updates to shows as they're uploaded. And you can also email info at backroompolitics.org for comments, concerns, fan mail, love letters to Dan, however you want to do it. Uh, That's all we've got this week. America, have a great week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Backroom Politics.